0: Well, hello and welcome to episode 106 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm hacking away here, Hugh Remington, and with me, the professor, as always, Peter Van Onselen.
1: How are you, Peter? Hello, Hugh. Good to be with you. Yeah, no, I'm well. You know, we're, we're, we've, we've had more days of lockdown, have we, in New South Wales than we have episodes of our show? I'm not sure. It's neck and neck. <laughs> it's pretty close. Not as many as our poor friends in Victoria most locked-down city in the world. Extraordinary, isn't it, really, when you think about it?
0: Most locked-down city in the world. Yeah, I didn't even want to mention it, actually, because um, it's really interesting. The last little phase, I've been seeing people have been very stoic in Melbourne just <laughs> lose their stuff. Can I put it that way? I don't blame them. And um, you just kind of feel as if somewhere there, there's a, uh, you know, the numbers are going in the wrong direction still, Uh there's just that horrible closed in feeling and, um, uh, you know, 100% sympathies to everyone in Victoria at the moment and just keep getting vaccinated, folks, and try and get out of it because I noticed that the Reserve Bank governor, uh, we'll get on to Don Perrottet in New South Wales, I guess, in a minute, Mm. Um, but the Reserve Bank governor, very positive statement this week, there will be a bounce back. Job advertisements on seek.com have gone up by 20% in September, 30% in hospitality and tourism. There is a sense that a lot of pent-up demand is about to be unleashed as um, as we uh, as we start to open up
1: again. Yeah, and, and that's obviously a good thing. So it will be some version of a snapback, although I notice that he was a little bit tempered. Uh, in in his rhetoric in relation to it being less likely to be as, as swift a snapback this time, even though it will be a strong recovery, because last time, of course, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? It took everyone to some extent by surprise how quickly we were able to, to shoot back and how well uh, employment numbers were and, and, and economic growth numbers It will come back again, we're told, uh, but not quite as rapidly. But that's not a bad thing because we want it to come back and stay there this time, don't we? Ideally, we want it to to be a strong recovery uh, that becomes a consistent one, avoiding future lockdowns with any luck. Uh, But we know from the international experience that we may have to go back in and out of lockdown every now and again, depending. But it won't be about case numbers. It'll be about hospitalizations particularly in, in icus so anytime the hospital system looks like it's under more pressure than is ideal in the context of a difficult period then we may need to see the odd lockdown here and there simply to to get it back under control before then uh before then getting on with life as normal or something close to it
0: <laughs> so if there is an economic bounce back again to use the uh, the, the reserve bank governor's words um what do you make of the politics of that at the moment according to news poll uh, the coalition trails the labor party uh, as it sort of steers the country through um, you know this difficult time do you see there being a a political bounce back for scott morrison with all the implications for election timing and so on or is that likely to lag a little if it comes at all
1: well certainly his side of politics will want the economy to be front and centre because fairly or unfairly, you know, it's the coalition that tends to do much better in political contests when the economy is front and centre, at least that's been the case for decades now. And their run-up to the next election, assuming it's early next year, which we can almost certainly bank it being now, is all about hoping that things open up and the economy recovers and we get these bad numbers that we'll get, um, that are, are lag effect numbers that show the first stage towards uh, a second recession with, with a, a quarter of economic downturn. But then we will get on the eve of the next election, I think March, beginning of March next year, uh, the, the next set of numbers that will show that we bounce back is the hope you know, in, in the wake of lockdowns and so forth. And they will try to piggyback off that and make the argument that the economy is roaring back to life. Don't trust Labor. They'll mess it up stick with us because we've presided over this roaring back of the economy and we've got a track record you believe in when it comes to the economy. And, and oh, by the way, we're fully vaxxed now, so don't be too concerned about some of the early problems there. It's how you finish the race, remember, Hugh. That's, that's what matters. It's not even whether you acknowledge it is a race in the first place. And then I guess lastly, but certainly not least, they will argue that when you also compare Australia to the rest of the world, far fewer people have died from COVID here uh, in all relative respects, than in other parts of the world, notwithstanding what we've seen recently with with you know daily updates on on deaths, particularly obviously in New South Wales and Victoria, that will be their battle plan. They will hope that the economy being front and centre is something that they can leverage uh, a fourth term in power off. The difficulty, though, I think, will be a state by state analysis. That's the thing that I think is going to be really interesting. At this election, does the coalition hold its incredibly disproportionate number of seats in Queensland and in Western Australia? I think it's more likely in Queensland than it is in Western Australia, but it's far from certain in either of those two states, given the parochialism that they have, as well as the popularity, particularly in WA, obviously, of the state premier. And both of those premiers, Labor premiers at that, have been at absolute loggerheads with Scott Morrison. And I don't see that changing between now and the next election and that will be all wrapped up in issues around border borders COVID, the economy as well with how we fight back whether you can have borders closed or not and of course the health system as well where we've seen anastasia palaszczuk really making some strong rhetorical arguments about the need for more funding at the state level to ensure that the state can cope with COVID when it does finally infiltrate queensland
0: And uh, Anthony Albanese heading off to Western Australia to stand alongside Mark McGowan and say, "Uh, don't you worry about that your special deal that you've got with uh, the Commonwealth on GST share uh, will hold, he's not going to shift it. So, um, which becomes increasingly relevant because the new Premier of New South Wales, Don Perrottet, in his very first press conference has signaled he intends to fight to get a better share of the GST for New South Wales. So that old battle is back on again. Uh, but Albanese looking to the election knows how to frame that one.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and we've got to get on to Dom Perrottet, obviously, to talk about a new Premier in New South Wales. You know, we we suspend the podcast for one week, Hugh, and then we can't even come back to the same leadership configuration amongst the Premiers. Things change very quickly in Australian politics. But, But just very quickly on WA, see, West Australia, where I've spent a lot of time, you know, my wife's from there, my children were born there, Western Australia really does like to, like, like to sit and wait and see itself as very different to the rest of the country. It does have quite a different history to the rest of Australia in terms of its colonial past, but it also does gyrate, politically speaking, when it comes to how its seats tend to perform at federal elections versus the rest of the country. And it's been a long time since we've seen one of those moments where the Australian people more broadly go one way, but West Australians go the other. It actually happened back in 1996 when John Howard won a landslide victory over Paul Keating, but Western Australia gyrated the other way because the Liberals, you know, were not as popular for various reasons over there at the time at the federal level. Now, forget the history lesson. I'm looking at West Australian seats at the next election, and it is going to be hard for the coalition to hold its lion's share of seats over there. I mean, has luck as long as the incumbent member, who's also the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, as long as, as Ken White decides to recontest, they should hold that seat, but it's no certainty. But then Steve Irons, uh, he's retiring from the ultra-marginal seat of Swan. You would think that, therefore, is up for grabs. Christian Porter, I doubt very much he'll run, but even if he does, he's, he's broken politically. So the seat of Pierce, which has been getting more and more marginal, comes into play. And then you've got those sort of outlier electorates, like a canning with Andrew Hastie, which used to be close, but have had solid margins for a while now, there are a number of seats in WA which are likely to fall Labor's way. And then even just the fact that there was the reconfiguration of seats over there, Liberals lost the seat of Sterling in that reconfiguration, which has left the sitting Liberal member for Sterling seatless. So there is a chance that we are waiting on election night with a three-hour time difference From daylight savings time on the East Coast, we are waiting to find out whether it's an Albanese government, a Morrison government, or indeed a hung parliament, based on whether the Liberals do or don't retain the lion's share of seats they currently have in WA, and it could throw up a very different directional swing to what we see around the rest of the country, it'll be very interesting. If we're
0: padding out late into the night on Channel 10 on election night, I'm glad to have you on board with your deep knowledge of each of each of those seats. Uh, I'll get on to Perite in a second, but uh, just on the subject of, of the next six months. If there's an election coming in six months, if we're going to have the bright summer that uh, Perrottet has just said that he expects that we will have, the economy coming back, jobs coming back, a sense of optimism coming back, hopefully no vast bushfires to remind us of those other issues. What does Labour have to do in the next six months if it's going to win the election?
1: Well, I think this is an election that, well, it needs to put to bed some of the fears that voters might have around change. Uh, And I think it needs to amplify Uh, Some of the problems that the government has had, as well as amplify the fact that this is a government chasing a fourth term, not a new government that was suddenly elected out of nowhere because there was a new prime minister seeking an election victory three years ago when Bill Shorten lost to Scott Morrison. I think those are givens that it needs to do, but I actually think it becomes a state-by-state battle. It really needs to shift the dial in a place like Queensland. It can pick up some seats in WA, as I just talked about, uh, and it, it needs to, you know, hold its own in New South Wales where Scott Morrison had hoped to win seats, but that perhaps is more difficult now when we get on to the decline and the fall of Gladys Berejiklian. That could make things tougher for the federal Liberals in New South Wales. But Labor, you know, it can do okay in various states, but Queensland is the state where it incredibly disproportionately Labor suffers. You know, it holds just over a handful of seats versus over 30 seats for the coalition over, you know, up in Queensland as part of the LNP. And that is a state that must swing back for Labor to swing itself back into government. And, and I think back to when Kevin Rudd won the kevin 07 election he was obviously a queenslander but it was a sharp shift in seats in queensland that got labor over the line they picked up seats in other parts of the country to be sure but it may not have been enough for them to actually secure a majority on their own had they not had a dramatic shift in queensland so where queensland goes generally speaking the election result goes if there is a shift on. So Anthony Albanese needs those Queensland seats. And and that's a delicate one for Labor, isn't it? Because Queensland is not homogenous and it is not necessarily paralleled on policy issues to the rest of the country. It's not homogenous in the sense that compared to other states, there are large numbers of regional seats because of a large population base outside Brisbane. So you have different issues affecting Brisbane seats versus far north queensland seats or even central queensland seats but it's also quite different on the issues issue by issue queenslanders don't vote necessarily the same way victorians for example do so so labor needs to find yes a consistent message but one that appeals to queenslanders if it wants to govern in its own right i think without a queensland shift that's big the best labor can hope for would be minority government.
0: It's still an enormous amount for uh, Labour to do if it wants to win the election. I think we can agree. Let's have a let's rip into Parité, Um, And that is an issue. The new premier for our largest state. Uh, before getting to how he got there, what did you make of his um, first press conference?
1: Yeah, It was interesting. I mean, he 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 had a few fumbles, didn't he? He wasn't sure who his new treasurer was as opposed to deputy leader. Uh, he assigned Stuart Ayres. The treasurership uh, before realizing that actually the deal that was done behind the scenes between the triumvirate of men was that Matt Keane the leader of the moderates gets that position uh, and the deputy liberal leadership without a a portfolio change was going to Stuart Ayres as you know the sort of minister for Western Sydney, if you like. He was very big on Western Sydney, wasn't he? He he understands that electorally he has to win Western Sydney over in the next 18 months if he wants to try to win another term of government for this long-term state liberal national coalition. But whether or not they can do that uh, is a whole other matter. I'm not sure that Karate is necessarily as uh, as strong an an appeal, I don't think his appeal necessarily will resonate in Western Sydney, even though I do think his religious conservatism will resonate more in Western Sydney than perhaps some of his critics in the inner city say.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've wondered, ever since I saw the vote come in for the same-sex marriage plebiscite, and you saw that the strongest no votes in the country were not in deep National Party country in rural Queensland. It was actually in the Labour voting areas of Western Sydney and mm. Southwestern Sydney, the migration areas of, uh, of Australia in many ways um, that they opposed the you know, same sex marriage you know for cultural reasons, religious reasons and so on. And I've wondered and watched to see whether the time might come when those seats that Labour would just put in the bank. Whether there's any prospect that um, they could turn turtle and suddenly go for a liberal party based on a strong uh, small business impulse in those suburbs of, of Sydney, uh, but also the religious elements of it, the conservatism of it. Uh, Chris Bowen has hinted at that. He's a Western Sydney uh, MP and says Labor's in danger of losing if it doesn't connect again with people of faith. Do you think it will reach the point where those seats become more naturally liberal so long as you've got liberals who are talking about small business and faith?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's possible. I think a lot of it will depend on the direction the Labour Party goes in the coming years. I don't see it happening at the next state election. I think Chris Minns, as the Liberal opposition leader in New South Wales, I think he is adroit... At, at making sure that he appeals into those seats uh, in Western Sydney. You know, so I think he can stem that flow, but, you know, more left of centre factional Labour figures, I think, are, are more likely to put those seats at risk if, for example, they don't listen to someone like Chris Bowen uh, about that issue, whereas Chris Mins is very much uh, a factional ally of Chris Bowen uh, and, and close to him. So I don't see it being an issue on, on his watch at the next state election
0: okay let's uh, take a quick break we'll talk about the fall of gladys what it means federally and for her uh and a bit more on the big shift in new south wales back in just a second welcome back episode 106 of the professor and the hack i am the hack hugh rimington and uh professor peter van onselen with me again let's I want to talk about Perrette and where he's going to go in just a moment, but let's pause for a moment and reflect on the fall of Gladys Berejiklian. Much lamented, much has been said about her popularity, much has been made of the tears and the flowers outside her electoral office in Willoughby, uh, the seat that she will now vacate completely and bring on a by election. Uh, uh, There was much to admire about Gladys Berejiklian Um, her intelligence, her warmth, her Um, willingness to stick at her post in difficult times when other senior politicians around the country seem to find reason to be overseas or somewhere else. Uh, She stuck with it a a lot that made people feel as if she was the right leader for them. And it crossed traditional political lines. She has gone. Um, Has she been unfairly treated by an out-of-control star chamber, as some say, in <laughs> the Ind- Independent Commission Against Corruption?
1: Look, no, um, but I do have some caveats when it comes to ICAC, but I don't fall into the category, you know, of, of some of these critics, which I suppose you include the Prime Minister in now with some of his comments, who think that ICAC is, you know, assumes guilt rather than innocence and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I, frankly, as far as... Gladys Berejiklian goes, I was surprised she survived the outing of those tapes of her conversations with Daryl Maguire um, from however many months ago now. When I heard the gist of that, there was no suggestion of her having partaken in any wrongdoing in those tapes. But it certainly sounded to me like she just wanted to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, well, and... well,
0: that is wrongdoing. And that is the point of Section well, 11 right. of, the, of the ICAC Act. Is that if you have reasonable grounds for suspicion for corrupt behavior, you are duty bound as a minister of the crown to report it. So it becomes wrongdoing. And, you know, I heard uh, Philip Ruddock, um, you know, the veteran uh, former attorney general, saying that he, she's not been hooked up on any suggestion of corruption, but on probity issues. Um, but in a sense, you know, the old line, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Um, if it is to be found, and we're still in a process, but if it is to be found that she was reason had reasonable grounds to be aware of corrupt activity and did not report it, then there should be in law no sympathy extended to
1: her. And and that's, in a sense, my point. So I like when I say she didn't appear to partake in any wrongdoing in those tapes, I mean, herself acting corruptly. Uh, and I, I, I doubt very much that any evidence of that ilk will come out going forward the important but in this and the reason that when you originally asked me, my answer was that I don't think she's been unfairly treated is because of exactly this issue. The reason I think she should have gone uh, when those tapes were revealed is because it sounded to me uh, like she was turning a blind eye. She didn't want to know about it. And that was presumably guided in part, in large part, I imagine because she was in a relationship with Daryl Maguire at the time. So she just, Shut the conversation down whenever he appeared to be talking about something that could lead to an untoward outcome, whether it had got there or not is a matter for ICAC to determine. But my, my issue is this. So I therefore don't think she's been unfairly torn down. I, I can see why um, once the investigation uh, was was relit. And it went public that it was about to go into its next phase. I understand why she therefore had to go. And as I say, I thought she probably should have gone and frankly got away with it through some very good PR management the first time around uh, when when she really should have gone then, in my view. What what I'm a little uncomfortable about, and I don't really know what the way around this is because I like all the teeth that uh, an ICAC has in New South Wales. But I am a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that you can ultimately get cleared, and I'm not saying this will or won't happen with her, but that politically the smear is such that you have to go before the findings are ultimately determined, but you can ultimately be found to be cleared like Nick Griner was, for example, and of course there's no way back. Now, I, I don't know whether that will or won't happen to Gladys Berejiklian. All I'm lamenting, I suppose, is that there's not some other third way that this can be done and you know in well, theory, well, I mean, if Mark- it was all I was just going to say very quickly in theory if it was all in secret and then eventually only came went public once the findings were announced that would be a way around it but I'm a little uncomfortable about that too as I'm sure you are because you know democracy that doesn't seem right either so it's it's a political wedge the situation with icac rather than anything Untoward or wrong about ICAC, and it just leaves me a little uncomfortable. But I'm not sure what the solution to that is.
0: Yeah, so Greiner was had a negative finding against him by ICAC, which was later turned over in the Court of Appeal. Mm. So ICAC did find him; he did have a negative finding against him, and that left him where he was. But uh, Mark Dreyfus, the uh, the federal shadow Attorney General, says there is nothing; there is no requirement in the ICAC Act for Gladys Berejiklian to resign. The resignation was entirely her choice. Mm. Uh, She could have toughed it out. She could have gone to the back bench um, uh, for a while, never ran, uh, toughed out an allegation of corruption against him, was ultimately cleared, went on and won another election. So that that um, was
1: pre-ICAC. It was was
0: pre-ICAC, but the principle, the principle remains that she could have gone off and toughed it out. I think in uh, you know, because it is not a requirement of ICAC that she resign, and so this notion is that she's resigned, forced to do so by ICAC, is not actually a
1: strict, um, you know, follow the bouncing ball type of. Um, but but flow. Hugh, that's kind of my point, isn't it? I mean, that's why I'm, I, I lament that the politics of it would seemingly require, at the very least, her to step aside for who knows how long. With ICAC, she's chosen to leave Parliament altogether. Politically, it's it's tough to soldier on uh, until you are cleared in one form or another or not. Uh, It's just, that's just a reality of politics. And that's my lament. The answer to that is not to dump ICAC as some people would suggest or not adopt it as Scott Morrison suggests. I think that's ridiculous, but I do still have a sort of uh, a, a bit of a grumble in my stomach about what it's, what, what the consequences of ICAC can lead to on the downside even though there are many upsides, because it's all about trying to ensure that it weeds out corruption. Well, I mean,
0: we are expecting to get, because we've been told to expect to get, a Federal National in- Integrity Commission, a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. Don't hold your breath. Uh, yeah. Don't hold your breath. The legislation, we haven't seen it yet, but if it looks like the exposure draft that was previously put out, um, it it's creates a new legal mechanism, which means that it can't look at anything in the past, which uh, Labor says it deeply opposes because um, if there were crimes that took place, you know, in the recent past, then that's exactly what a commission should be looking at. If people become aware of crimes, um, then then you shouldn't have people in high and important offices who may be guilty of of crimes that need to be uh, unpicked by precisely this kind of thing. It seems to be shaping as one of the real points of difference. Going into the next election where Labor can appear to be when you've got a, a government that's been in office now for a good number of years. It'll be nine years by the time the election is held, um, you know, and so it starts to occur all those barnacles of of corruption and rorts and, you know, ministers behaving badly and all that other kind of stuff. And and people, I think, will want to see um, it'll be a, a vote winner for Labor. They certainly think it's going to be that. um that they're going to take corruption seriously in high office. How well do you think that, or how much do you think that'll be an issue come election time?
1: I think it'll be in the mix, but I think other issues will dominate, Uh, but it could become the sort of proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back if there is a move on, that you've also then got the incoming potential government uh, arguing that it wants a powerful federal corruption watchdog that can look back. That becomes an additional reason to vote for change, if you're starting to have a gut full of the incumbent government, yeah, but it's you you a bit like the sorry
0: question. The... It's you know for Kevin yeah, Rudd, you know, yeah. P, P, it's, it's, that wasn't the issue that was going to be the ultimate determinant, but it becomes essentially the symbolic issue of the need for change
1: and and you know of a better way to approach a thorny issue. Yeah, that that's a really good comparison actually, because the the sorry issue was not the determinant issue that brought about the end of John Howard, but it really did symbolise that it was time for a change. And, and I, think, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's very analogous uh, to, to where Labour would already need to be and it had already gotten there under Kevin Rudd and then it had the sorry differential added to that. I think it's very similar here. Labour already needs to get to a particular point that voters are ready for change and then this will be a symbolic addendum to that, uh, if it's arguing for a corruption watchdog, particularly one that's able to be retrospective. And that's, of course, much easier to do uh, politically when you're when you've been out of government for a long time uh, rather than when you're in government. And of course, that is its own issue, isn't it? Because that will feed into voter cynicism potentially about the government uh, that they've got something to hide. I would have never agreed with the adage that uh, if you've got nothing to hide, don't be afraid of X, Y, and Z infringements on your civil liberties. I think that's utter, utter rubbish, but I think that rhetorically it's a powerful argument and it can be adopted uh, by Labor in, in, in relation to a federal watchdog.
0: Yes, rhetorically adopted by repressive regimes the whole world over. If you've got nothing to hide, <laughs> you don't mind having you know, security agents picking their way through your uh, underwear drawer. Um, on to Don Perrottet. He is an unusual fish. He is the first ever... Uh, premier um, to emerge in New South Wales, not just the youngest that that, uh, New South Wales ever had, but the first to emerge from a conservative uh, Christian background, Catholic background, uh, a member of the right faction of the Liberal Party when it has been traditionally moderates who have uh, flourished. Um, Much of being made as to what that might mean in the grand scheme of things, I think less than it might appear. What's your view? Yeah, I think
1: less than it might appear, but I, I, I think the bigger issue with him is that he won't necessarily resonate uh, with a warmth for voters that is necessary for the coalition to win another term in New South Wales because it would be a fourth term. Uh, but it's an interesting mix. I mean, you know, he's, he's got what six, six children. He's a devout Catholic, born and raised into the faith. Uh, very young, much younger than he looks. Which I don't mean as a as an attack on him, but he 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 looks older and wiser than he is uh, as a person in his only in his late thirties. Uh, and he's there as a consequence of a deal essentially between moderates and the center right, whom control the numbers, but couldn't agree on one of their own getting the job. So he's part of the hard right. Uh, and, you know, unusually therefore elevated to the leadership of the liberal party and in government. So he gets to be premier as well. Look, the, the longer term consequence, I think of, Perrette taking over is most likely going to be that they lose in 18 months and it knocks him out. And then the remaining forces who didn't take over, those who survive the election, depending on what the electoral defeat looks like, would then see Stokes, the defeated candidate who received less party room votes than Dominic Perrette has children. He may well be one of the ones that runs. Uh, Matt Keane, uh, who's there as the treasurer, and of course, Stuart Ayres, if he survives in his seat at the next election as the now Deputy Liberal, they will fight, along with probably Mark Speakman as well, uh, who's another moderate, a former barrister, uh, the Attorney General, they will sort of fight over what's left in opposition of the Liberal Party if they do lose. But how they lose becomes relevant to how quickly they might get back because they could become the generation of Liberal leaders who we watch getting cycled through, just like we watched Prio Farrell's victory, Peter Debnam losing and John Brogdon uh, stepping aside in circumstances we, we all know about now. Uh, Kerry Chikaroski, don't forget, she was there as well. Peter Collins uh, was, was in there as well. So uh, that, that is where I see this going with my sort of 10-year forecast. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Perite has 18 months to prove me wrong and secure a fourth term uh, just like labor managed to do when it was in government before its eventual downfall to Barry O'Farrell.
0: And all that assumes that Chris Minns is a, is a Bob Carr type figure capable of, uh, mm. of sweeping what looks to be sometimes a not particularly overwhelmingly impressive uh, labor party in New South Wales to, uh, uh, to victory. But 18 months is an enormous amount of time uh, for all these things to change. Um, Peter, as always, an absolute delight. Stay well And uh, come Monday in New South Wales, we start to open up and uh, a few corks will be, a few bottles will be uncorked when that comes. So everyone get vaccinated, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week. Look after
1: yourself. Talk then. Talk then. See you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.
0: 10 Speaks Racing, Michael Felgate and the team from the Channel 10 Melbourne Cup Carnival Broadcast
1: We've got the crew
0: back together again. bring you all the information in the lead-up to the race that stops a nation. Punters love it. Punters love two-year-old racing. Um, There's so many spruits. Yeah, there are. And everyone's immoral leading to that. The 10 Speaks Racing Podcast. Find it on your podcast app or on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play.